Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Solver, and it's time once again for my podcast with the American Journal of Managed Care, always a fun part of my, I'd say, month. And today we have a really special guest. We have Dr. Richard Barron, who is the president and CEO of the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation. We're going to talk a little bit about what the foundation does. Uh, He has had an incredible career. He's the former chair of the American Board of uh, Internal Medicine and on the ABIM Board uh, of Trustees. Um, But he's also been a practitioner. He practiced general internal medicine and geriatrics for almost 30 years at Greenhouse Internists which is an innovative medical group um, in Philadelphia. And he also served as a group director of Seamless Care Models at um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Innovation Center. Um, He's also been on the board of the National Quality Forum and the Standard Committee of NCQA. And I don't know, Rich, is is there anything in healthcare that you haven't done? I haven't done a lot of things that you've done, Pat, and uh, you certainly have built a, a wonderful reputation uh, with this kind of podcast, and I'm thrilled to be here with you. Well, welcome. So um, let's get started. I thought the first thing we should do is to have you tell us a little bit about the ABIM Foundation. What, what's its mission and, and the primary focus of the foundation? How are you doing your work? Great question. The mission of the ABIM Foundation is improving healthcare by strengthening medical professionalism. And that sounds like kind of a hokey, airy-fairy thing to talk about, but the core assumption is that one of the ways that healthcare could be a lot better is if policymakers and leaders and administrators thought more about the role of medical professionalism, thought more about the intrinsic motivation of clinicians who go to work and want to do the right thing. And a lot of the conversation that goes on about trying to optimize performance in healthcare, what's the right payment system to have? What's the right staffing model to have? What's the right regulations to have? And our foundation spends a lot of time thinking about What approaches could you use that would appeal to professionalism, would appeal to intrinsic motivation, and use that as an intentional policy lever to make healthcare better? So, you know, it's interesting. I would say most non-physicians would think that all physicians are professionals. What really is the problem you're trying to solve with the focus on professionalism? And can you start by first giving me a concrete definition or explanation of of what exactly the foundation means when they talk about professionalism? Sure. Um, The foundation created with the American College of Physicians and the European Federation uh, of Internal Medicine in 2001 created a document called a Charter on Medical Professionalism. And it called out, it was meant to be a 21st century code of ethics And quite frankly, I began my service on the board in 2001, around the time the charter was being developed, and I was pretty unenthusiastic about it. Why do we need one more code of ethics reciting various kinds of expectations? The 
major new focus that the charter added, it talked about patient welfare, which is old. It talked about patient autonomy, which was old. But it also called out social justice as a core responsibility of physicians. And it enumerated a series of commitments, one of which related to stewardship. And this is 2001, the foundation saying that we need to think about stewardship of finite resources as a core professional obligation. And when you ask, how does the foundation actually do its work, the strongest example I could give is the signature campaign of the ABIM Foundation called Choosing Wisely. And Choosing Wisely was developed to help address the issue of responsible stewardship. Physicians do care about resources. They particularly, as we now live in a world where patients have high deductible health plans and may experience very significant copays and may be bearing much of the cost of their health care, patients are very interested in knowing, do I really need that test? As we talk about the move from volume to value, we're interested in ways that that can feel to physicians not like something the CFO wants or the head of the practice group wants, or you don't want to go into a room full of doctors and say, gosh, if you guys could reduce MRI scans, we'd, we'd make a fortune on this new value-based contract we have. That's, a, that's an unethical, unprofessional, and terrible conversation to have. But if you had a way to have that conversation that said, you know, there are things we do more than we should do, and we shouldn't do those things. And examples are things like doing MRIs for low back pain early on. Most people with low back pain are going to get better. So the foundation organized medical societies to take on the question, can you come up with a list of five things that people do too much of? And there were four very simple rules. It has to be in your area of practice. It has to be consequential, either because it has a high impact on patients of cost or complications, or it's frequently done. Uh, the third was your recommendations had to be evidence-based. And the fourth was your process had to be transparent. And based on those four rules, the foundation worked with 80 different subspecialty societies generating lists of five things that you should question. Not you should never do them, but you should question. And that's an example, Pat, of trying to take the abstract concept of professionalism and stewardship and create an activity that professional societies could engage in and create tools that doctors at the point of care could pick up and use. And it really took off. It's now in 20 different countries and 80 different societies. And it's had two rounds of funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, to do dissemination strategies. So it's, it's been a very high impact, very high visibility campaign. And it's all based on the appeal to people to do the right thing uh, and, and give them a way to express actualize their own professional impulse, not to harm patients by doing unnecessary services. So I, I'm in total agreement with um, what you said and the underlying principle, and I actually used to say this for years to my colleagues when I was practicing emergency medicine, that 
stewardship of finite resources is absolutely one of the um, professional responsibilities that we have. Um, but I have to say um, that there has been criticism of the Choosing Wisely campaign and um, some discussion of whether the the tests or the focus areas that were chosen were were actually the ones that were going to have the biggest cost impact. So, you know, it would be easy for me to throw out five things that really aren't going to be a big deal and affect my bottom line, but I may be hesitant to, uh, you know, throw out those ones where uh, it's really generates the revenue that sustains my practice. How, how, how have you been responding to that criticism? Well, you're you're absolutely right, and there is um, there is some legitimacy to that criticism that if you were the chief medical officer of the health plan or somebody managing a risk based contract, that's where that's where you would start. You would start with the highest cost, highest impact things, and you would have various tools in your toolbox to try to make that happen. Choosing wisely didn't go that route. That gave up the strategy that you're describing of targeting the highest cost, potentially highest impact. But it said to the societies, you need to find this. You need to own this. You're the authorities. We're not, as the foundation, going to peer review what you do. You're the experts. We're counting on you to do the right thing here. And with 80 societies, there were a number that didn't uh, go very deep or get very aggressive in some of their recommendations. But there were other societies, uh, the Society of General Internal Medicine, the, my home society as a general internist, uh, advised giving up the annual physical. And that's what how general internists make a living. So there were societies that went very deep and took real risks. But the important thing from our point of view was that it was physician-owned. There was a ton of buy-in. There was a ton of legitimacy. It wasn't coming from a financial savings framework. It was coming from a harm reduction framework. Don't do unnecessary things that may hurt people. And there's definitely a trade-off by not picking what you might call the most aggressive things. But I think the other side of that is we activated a lot of attention and engagement and society. Societies had to appoint committees to do this work. They had to devote resources to disseminating it. And they bought in and were proud of that. And so I think it's an example of an opportunity where activating professionalism gets you a lot of things you might not get if you tried the, the, the let's find the highest cost things and go after those. Well, I agree. It's always a balance uh, between getting people to uh, buy into doing the right thing and then recognizing that at some point, at least in some areas of medicine, there's a real conflict between stopping doing things that don't bring a lot of value and, and the success of, of a particular profession and not to pick on the orthopedist, but I will pick on the orthopedist. Uh, we know that there's a lot of uh, unnecessary surgery that's going on, and the role of the orthopedic societies really is number one, first and foremost. They're a trade association that are advancing, you know, the financial and mental health well-being of, of of their physicians. But but you can see where it creates this conflict, and it's and it starts to raise a, a question in the in the mind of people who are involved on the health policy side of 
you know, what are the things that we really need to do to get costs under control? Because choosing wisely has, I believe, been documented to get some costs under control, and I'll let you speak to that. But overall, healthcare costs are still wildly out of control. For sure. And, and choosing wisely is not a panacea. Uh, it, it's, it's a tool in the toolbox. Uh, you know, you are very familiar with the literature that talks about, well, how much is it about price? How much is it about unit price? Do we have higher utilization in this country than we do in other countries? Maybe not so much, but we certainly have higher prices. So price is part of the issue. Uh, another part of the issue uh, in how this all works in a fee-for-service system, it drives volume, and we know that's a piece as well. So payment structures make a difference in what people do and what people don't do. There are people out there who advocate that it's all about transparency, that that if patients had access to prices and quality data, uh, that would be a, a very powerful lever. I think all of those things are powerful levers. But for something that is 17% of the GDP and rising, isn't going to be one thing. And what I can say about choosing wisely is that there are plenty of healthcare applications where within a system, people said, we're going to focus on this particular choosing wisely recommendation and organize things like electronic health record alerts around it, data reporting around it, patient education around it. And they were able to document substantial cost savings, a lot of which may have come from the buy-in of the clinicians who were basically being told look, the American College of Cardiology thinks this is something we shouldn't be doing. So it's not our CFO. It's not the contract officer. It's not even our chief medical officer. It's your professional society says this is something that doesn't add a lot of value and we shouldn't be doing it and we're going to monitor and measure it. And those are things that have led to uh, in excess of 10%, 20% reductions in unnecessary antibiotic use. They've led to uh, substantial reductions in unnecessary laboratory testing. So in particular applications, it's been very effective, providing, in effect, a moral and professional basis for physicians to focus on uh, avoiding harmful and wasteful and unnecessary care. That's great. I want to take a a little bit of a left turn here and go back to something that you said earlier when I was um, asking you about what professionalism is, and you brought up this issue of social justice. And, uh, and, and I love that idea, and I have always thought that physicians should be on the leading ed- edge of advocating for social justice, and in particular, sh- social justice around the issue of healthcare itself. And yet, I felt that physicians have been um, reluctant to jump in to the healthcare debate and 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 willing almost not every physician of course but willing almost to to kind of turn a blind eye to um having so many people in our country who don't have access to affordable healthcare insurance how do you feel about that do you think Docs are doing as much as they should. Um, what's the role of the foundation since they pointed out that social justice was important? Um, how do you see this issue getting addressed? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, you, you know, you're asking yeah, jumped uh, into two, it, right? <laughs> the, the $2 trillion question. Uh, and 
I, I, I will say as a personal matter, um, this was the issue that, um, in effect got me out of practice that I, I would be in community practice today. Um, I, I was there, as you said at the beginning for almost 30 years and I had an incredible opportunity at the Innovation Center to lead a group that focused on developing new models for payment and or service delivery that increase quality and decrease cost. And I worked in what was called the Seamless Care Models Group and was uh, right in the middle of developing the Comprehensive Primary Care Initiative um, and the Pioneer ACO model. So we were involved in ACO models and primary care models. And to do that, I had to leave my practice. I had to go to work for the, for the federal government, which is a, um, uh, an unforgettable experience and an educational experience. And I had to, my wife was not interested in leaving Philadelphia. And so I had to go get an apartment in Baltimore and, uh, and be there all week. And I did that because I, I agree with you. It, I think it is one of the critical issues of our time. But I also learned when I was there that at the Innovation Center, the only thing that comes out of the CMS building is checks. Money flows out of the CMS building. That doesn't take care of anybody. And it's frontline clinicians and the way that they practice and the way that they optimize the systems that they work in. Now, I think everybody has the opportunity to lead from where they stand. If you're in a small community practice, you can improve the service quality of that practice, improve the efficiency of that practice. If you work in a hospital, you can serve on committees and try to upgrade the way the committee, the hospital does its work. And I know that physicians are feeling overwhelmed and, uh, and, and alienated and feeling kind of beaten down by uh, electronic health records and various regulatory fiats uh, that, that feel like they are descending upon them. But in the middle of all of that, Pat, it is physicians and patients. Patients have needs. They come to us because of our expertise. We're in a position to offer service and help for that. That is a deeply meaningful work to do. And I, I think physicians, wherever they're working in the healthcare system, have opportunities to improve it. And we need to encourage our colleagues to do that. We need to create systems where they are encouraged to do that and where they don't feel disempowered. I'm trying to decide what I want to ask you about next. There's so much to talk about here. I, I want to say that this idea of encouraging docs to get involved as leaders in their own communities and organizations and even at the state and national level <clears throat> is is really important. And that certainly is a way in which in which docs could um, enact uh, the mandate for social justice. But there was just a really interesting article that was published in uh, the New York Times called uh, For Doctors, Age May Be More Than a Number. And they covered a bunch of things, but one of the things that really struck me was they talked about how um, – a fifth of American doctors now are older than 65, and we're just not leaving the field. I mean, people are sticking around for a long time, and um, it, it really doesn't leave a lot of room for young physicians to step into leadership positions because those leadership positions are filled by older doctors who stay on and on and on. We actually have that problem in our government, too. That's an aside. Uh, but... Um, 
how do you think we can address that? Is, 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 are there some thoughts about what ABIM could do to encourage some of these older docs maybe to change from keeping their leadership position for 25 years to understanding that part of their obligation um, in, in terms of professionalism is to help young docs go up the ladder and acquire not only leadership skills, but leadership positions? Well, I think there's a lot going on in in leadership and a lot going on in what you're describing. I, I think, first of all, one of the challenges for doctors um, is that as leaders and as managers, and you've had a career that took you from the bedside to the C-suite, um, and you understand that those are very different ways of looking at the world. Um, and you understand that some of the skills that you have as a bedside clinician are absolutely foundational to successful management. And some of the skills that you have as a bedside clinician are lethal uh, to <laughs> successful management. <laughs> and leadership. True. And, and I think that uh, the first thing I would say for young position leaders is uh, that, that it is a skill that needs to be acquired by practice the same as clinical medicine needs to be acquired. Uh, and people shouldn't start by assuming uh, I'm the one who really knows how to fix all this and everybody else should just get out of the way. My first leadership job, Pat, was the chief medical officer of a large Medicaid HMO uh, in the late 80s when the words Medicaid and HMO in the same sentence guaranteed that people would move away from me at a cocktail party. And, <laughs> for sure. Uh, for sure. And my friends would say, we're so glad you're there because we know if you're there, everything's going to be okay because you really understand what this is all about. And I said, sure, it's great that I'm there. But you know what? I don't know how to run a marketing campaign. I don't know how to hire people and not run afoul of the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission. I don't know where to put $100 million tonight and find it tomorrow morning. And I don't know how to get an HMO license. And if we didn't have those skills, we wouldn't be in business as a company. So physicians appreciating the skills that others have I think is a core element in physician leadership. And I think there's plenty of opportunities for younger physician leaders to get engaged. And it's not about paying dues, but it is about getting experience and not just assuming that because they're doctors and because they've identified a problem, uh, that the solution that they have is the right problem. I I think one of the best instincts a doctor can have in running afoul of what, and this saved me at the government, frankly, I asked myself the question every time I ran into what seemed like a completely insane policy, who could have thought this was a good idea? What problem might this have been trying to solve? And what might a better way to solve that problem be? And I think that's a very helpful way for physician leaders to approach challenges that come up in clinical medicine, there are a lot of problems that are being solved in healthcare every day from how to source drugs in an affordable way to how to staff units to how to maintain and operate technology. All of those problems, solving those problems is critical to clinical success. And I think physicians do well to understand how many other people we need to help us be successful, how many other things have to go right for all of us to succeed in our mission of taking care of patients? 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Because I remember those early days when physicians used to come and say to me, well, why do we even need that insurance company anyway? I think we should just, you know, we'll just do our own plan, which of course, <laughs> most right. of them weren't successful because that, because they didn't put the right people around the table. Um, <clears throat> and, and luckily we've moved on from that. I have to say, I spent a large part of my career at uh, Kaiser Permanente. And one of the things that they did was that they offered the opportunity for both physician and non-physician leaders in the health plan and on the medical group side to uh, attend a, a kind of a mini MBA together. So right. it wasn't just the docs all sitting up in a room. It was the docs and the people with all the administrative skills on the health plan that most of us physicians didn't know anything about learning about healthcare and how to improve our management and leadership skills together. And I'd really love to see that become more widespread. I completely agree. I completely agree. So I'm going to take one more left turn because um, we're starting to run out of time here. And I want to be sure that we have a chance to cover the issue of burnout. Um, is there any intersection, do you think, between the work that you're doing in the foundation and what is increasingly being perceived as a very disturbing and widespread problem of physician burnout that's leading docs really of all ages, including people at the beginning, very beginning of their career, sometimes the beginning of their training, to leave medicine? Absolutely. Uh, there are a few things that I can say about the foundation and burnout. One, um, we funded uh, uh, someone who was on the board, uh, the ABIM board, and who is now on the foundation board, Dr. Christine Sinsky. Um, she has become one of the national experts on physician resilience. She's the one who coined the term finding joy in practice. The article that she published on finding joy in practice was supported by our foundation. And a lot of what we're, it, it gels with some of the things that we were talking about earlier. Burnout certainly has to do with dysfunctional systems, with feeling disrespected, with losing autonomy, with losing control. But in the middle of it all also is losing meaning and losing touch with purpose. And what Chris has focused a lot on is re-engineering practice to create space for joy and space for uh, for the meaningful parts of medical practice. And she is still in practice part-time, but she's now taken an administrative leadership job uh, at the AMA, where the, a job her husband, also an internist who practices with her, uh, describes her as the Veep of Joy, that her title is the mm -hmm. Vice President of Joy at the AMA. So we were, we were in the field that way. Uh, the National Academy of Medicine is doing work on uh, resiliency and burnout, and we are both funding that work and participating in that work as well. Uh, and I think it, um, it, is, it is very important for institutions to take this seriously, for physician leaders to take this seriously. Uh, and the, I know much of your audience it, are managed care leaders and health system leaders. Uh, and uh, uh, Chris has developed at the AMA a roundtable of those folks, and many of them are developing uh, 
organizational metrics to use on burnout and formal strategies around burnout. Uh, and it's not our work, it's her work and the AMA's work, but we take some pride uh, in, uh, in having uh, gotten her started in, in that area. Well, that's, that's, that's really great. And, and I love the idea of, of somebody thinking about and people working on how to return joy to medicine. I, I want to raise this issue, though, of whether it needs to be joy in the continued practice of medicine or whether it's, it's sending a message that there are so many ways that you contribute, can contribute to medicine and healthcare and, and health of populations beyond being in the, in the office. And I had mentioned to you earlier that I actually wrote a story, really, it was based on my career about how, you know, switching from one thing to another from being a practicing emergency physician to being a physician executive to being a consultant to being an entrepreneur and now to doing uh, health media has allowed me to just stay in love with medicine. Of course, I, I was in love with medicine when I was about eight years old, so this has really been you know, a, a lifelong love affair for me. But I wonder if, if some of the work that you describe that's being done needs to kind of broaden what they're thinking about so that that individuals who need to have continual challenges. I, I remember on my last night in the ER, you know, resuscitating a full arrest and my pulse not even going fast when my initial days in the ER, I mean, I, I had tachycardia all the time, you know, because everything was so new and exciting and fast and, um, and scary. Uh, so, so w what do you think ab about that? And I, and I want to add one last thing, which is an observation from working with a team of, of millennials and having the opportunity in past jobs to interview young people for jobs. They don't look at work the same way we do. A lot of millennials, you'll say, well, I see you, you've had five jobs in the, you know, in the last 10 years. And they'll say, well, well, yeah, you know, I stayed at that one for two years. Uh, how, uh, how is all that going to fit together? Well, I, I think, uh, first of all, even if you tried to stay in the same field, the field changes out from under you that, um, you know, any doctor who's lived uh, before and into the age of electronic health records has seen the way they do their work change dramatically. Any doctor who's gone, gone from a practice that um, only had phone access to the world of email has seen the way they do their work change dramatically. So new challenges come up all the time, even if you try to stay where you are. But I think you're right that, uh, and, and your career illustrates it, that people will get to a place, and my career may as well, where you say, you know, there's something else that I think I would find more fulfilling. Nobody should feel locked into doing something that they hate. Uh, that was certainly advice I gave patients in practice, whether they were bankers or lawyers or, or uh, colleague physicians, that it's important for all of us to take seriously 
how much joy we're finding in work and what other kinds of things we might find more joyful or more engaging or more rewarding. And that's going to be individual. It's going to be different for different people, for sure. Uh, some people are going to want to stay in one place and they're going to really appreciate the continuity. Uh, other people are going to want more change and diversity. And I think medicine is a very large tent uh, that can accommodate all of those things. And uh, people should not stay in positions that they are miserable in and they should either take steps to try to make them more joyful or they should look for other opportunities altogether. And I think that's true across the board, not just in medicine. Well, I, I agree with you. And, and I think we're going to have to make that the, the last word. I, w- I want to say, Richard, that I've really enjoyed talking to you and I'm kind of in awe that we ended up having a conversation that included words like love and joy and happiness and fulfillment and all the things that really at the end of the day all those people that are you know applying to medical school or struggling through the challenges of pre-med or 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 medical school or residency particularly you know our 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 grueling uh, training um, those are all words that people are hoping will be a big part of their life, and I'm really delighted that you are in a position through um, the role that you have at the ABIM Foundation and its focus on professionalism to help be sure that we keep on talking about joy and love in the context of medicine. So I want to thank you very much, and uh, I wish you good luck, and hopefully we'll be able to have another conversation sometime in the future. Thanks, Pat, to you as well. I think the future is bright and there is still plenty of meaning and value and human connection to be found in medical practice. And I I am enthusiastic about people finding pathways that do that. Thanks for your work and uh, for all of the thoughtful conversations that you're leading. Thank you. 